Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. EmailToolTester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email tool tester comparison template to find it. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Norm Houston. He's a partner and managing director at Russell Reynolds & Associates. Norm advises clients on customer-centric go-to-market leadership roles. Based in Chicago, he leads their global customer activation and growth practice. He conducts searches for all types of customer-centric leadership roles, including the CEO, COO, Chief Digital Officer, and CMO. His prior roles, he's actually served as a CMO at Macy's and then Claire's stores. He's also been an agency executive uh, for agencies such as Havas Worldwide. On the show today, we talk about the state of the CMO. What should we know from the recruiter's perspective? If you're a CMO or somebody aspiring to be one, how should you think about developing yourself? And what type of person are you? And are you really craving and searching for the fit of a role that is perfect for you or chasing a role? So that and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Norm Houston. Norm, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it should be. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I mean, I interview so many chief marketing officers or people that have a similar related title. So um, this will be a fun one because you are always searching for them and <laughs> and placing them. Believe me, it was super exciting scrolling through your very long, robust list of CMOs that you've already interviewed. It was I kind of was geeking out on it. So thanks for having all of those uh, at the ready for me to, to listen to. It was very cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one thing we like to do is just start off with something personal. I know you're venturing into the unknown, so to speak. You're, you've got a transition underway. I would love for you to tell me a little bit about that. I do. I do. I can't believe 
believe I'm already here, but my wife and I just became empty nesters. We had our 30th wedding anniversary and empty nesterdom all happening around the same time. So after so much of your life and career shepherding three kids, and now that they're pretty much self-sustained and adults, or at least that's the plan. Having them all out of the house is fun and scary and exciting and invigorating. So a lot of change, just figuring out what the new normal is right now when there isn't running around the house as much as there used to be. Yeah. It's quite a transition. I mean, I'm still four years away from that, but uh, my daughter just entered high school, but we had had a little taste of it this summer. And it took a couple days for me and my wife when we were by ourselves to like figure out how to couple again, I think is what people call it. And it happens like all of a sudden, because all the way up until getting your kid out the door to go to college, it's like the most intense time of parenting that you can possibly actually have. And then you drop them off and then it's like over. It's like all of a sudden, which was pretty exciting. So what my wife and I did is we uh, very shortly after dropping our last off, we went to Europe for about a two week holiday, which was so fun and so great. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. From that transition to helping other people transition in their careers, how did you end up in executive recruiting and, and becoming a partner and running both the customer activation and growth practice at Russell Reynolds? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. You know, I think venturing into the unknown is something that you just have to embrace as as a marketer or go-to-market leader. Um, and I've pretty much been facing that throughout my, my my whole career and it really is about how I landed into executive recruiting and leadership advisory. So, a little bit of storytelling here as a former CMO and agency president and go-to-market leader, I was working with a recruiting firm, Russell Reynolds, and another one at the exact same time. Both of them were running me as a candidate. And interestingly, I liked the role better at the other recruiting firm, but I liked the people better at Russell Reynolds. And I just found like, gosh, I really like these people who are recruiting me. I'm really not that interested in the job, but I really like the conversations and just the style and really getting to know me you know, as myself. And I almost remember this moment in time going, gosh, I wish that job with that firm was over with this firm, because then that would be ideal. But I did actually say no to the to the Russell Reynolds CMO job. It just felt like a lateral move for me. And it was, you know, I've relocated a ton of times with my family, which we can go into later because it was Asia and Europe. And I'm originally from Canada. So we did a lot of moving and it was about time that we kind of just settled down a little bit. So I said, no, I'm not interested in that particular role. And they just pivoted the conversation and be like, well, do you want to come here and lead our global chief marketing officer practice? To which I immediately and viscerally was like, no, I don't want to be a headhunter. No, no, uh-uh. I didn't quite say it like that. I was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for thinking about me. I got to think about it. And I just remember thinking like, that's never going to happen. And I kind of just put it to the, to the side and they were just gracious and following up with me, yet I was really adamant that I wanted this other CMO job. I thought it was made for me. And the moment that I actually, in a weird sort of way, because I didn't get that job that I thought I was going to get, going into recruiting was a little bit like the rebound relationship because I was so distraught that I didn't get this perfect job for me that I was like, I'm done. I'm going to go to Russell Reynolds and try to figure out how to do this recruiting thing. Because um, at the same time, I was still going for this number one job that I really wanted. I had casually joked with some friends by, can you believe Russell Reynolds asked me to be a recruiter? And just people that I liked and trusted were like, oh my God, you'd be so good at that. I'm like, really? You know? And then my wife would be like, you love to talk and you love people. So like, Surely you'd be good at this job. So like all these things were kind of happening at the same time. Like people were telling me I should do it. And then I didn't get this perfect ideal job that I, that's all I ever wanted. So I kind of made a quick decision and be like, all right, I'm going to just try this on for size. And instead of being a CMO, I can live vicariously through all the CMOs you know, that I, that I taught. So it was kind of an emotional decision supported by fact of people I trust saying that it was. And I thought, what the heck, let's, let's try this out. And that's kind of how I got here. And that was nine years ago. And it's the best job I've ever had. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's kind of amazing. You had to, you, you emotionally work your way there, if you will, <laughs> but it, it is such a, such a great background having been on the agency side, agency leader, and then also a CMO yourself and gone through in the heat of the moment, a, another CMO search as you were considering this job. I mean, like you 
kind of were forged to make this leap <laughs> in some ways. Can I tell you another funny story that that happened out of out of that? So, of course, anytime you don't get a job, one of the first things you do is stalk the person who did, right? Because you want to know who your competition is. So, of course, I was waiting for the press release to come out, like who got this job that I didn't get and how could they possibly be better than me, right? So I actually saw this person and I looked at their background and I'm like, oh, they're totally not better than me. It just made me want to be that much more successful at Russell Reynolds because I was like, well, I'm going to prove myself that I am I am good at this, that I'm good at something. And honestly, for like three years, secretly, every time I saw this person in the press, because it was a very high profile job, every time I saw them, I just like, I put one more pin in the voodoo doll that was under my bed at this person. And it was just literally, I told nobody about this. It was like just secretly deep down inside, I was just like, I think I should have had that job. And I just, and I will tell you, the executive search firm didn't really give me a good reason, which was also an informative thing on how to be a great recruiter. That if you're number two, you do the same amount of work as the person who comes in number one, but you get the same prize as the person who gets last, which is nothing. That Picking up number twos and spending a lot of time with number twos who could have almost gotten that job because they're just as qualified for that job. It's just, you know, splitting hairs sometimes why person A gets the job versus person B. That really informed me on how to nurture and develop and really give good critical feedback and development and growth feedback for that number two person so they become the number one. Anyway, I digress. So the voodoo doll with this candidate, (laughs) I was taking references for one of the searches that I was closing. And this executive gave me this person as someone I needed to call as a reference for their candidacy. And I literally got it. I was like, there is no flipping way I can actually call this human being who I've been secretly low-key hating for three years. But I was like, all right, I put on my big boy pants and I called him. And honestly, within the first 30 seconds, I'm just like, I'm so annoyed. I think I really like this person. And after 15 minutes, just by the way, how gracious they were, how well they answered, how strategic, how smart, how clear, all of these great hallmarks for amazing CMOs. And just because I judged on paper, thinking that he wasn't as good as me, when I actually spent five minutes with him, I was like, you're better than I was for that job. Like honestly, which again is a great recruiting moment. It's like you can't judge people just by their paper. You have to spend time you have to use your your personal judgment and your feeling on people. And 20 minutes in the conversation, we ended. And I said, do you have another couple of minutes? Because I'm going to tell you something that's going to sound really, really strange. And I told him my story. I started saying, I've hated you for three years. <laughs> Just hold on. I'm going to tell you why. And we ended up hitting it off. And now this person is a great colleague, contact, and friend. And it was a great, humbling moment for me. I think it made me a better recruiter. I think it made me a better person. And also just you know, having some self-awareness. And that's something that, that, I, that I would say is like, just because you come in second or you don't get the job doesn't, doesn't mean you're worthy, but there's always some reason. And ask your recruiter if you're working with a firm, why did they get the job? Why didn't I? And, and be okay with it because you'll be, you'll be better off and you'll save yourself a lot of anguish of like, having a voodoo doll with somebody for three years like I did. That's how I dealt with it, which I learned a lot from. That's awesome. What a great experience and turnaround, if you will, (laughs) to, to close the loop and make a new friend out of it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Well, you've obviously been in the in the fight yourself for those roles. You've shepherded other people through that process now over the last nine years. As you think about the CMO role today, what should we know? We all know, and we talk about on this program quite a bit, is that every CMO seems like a snowflake. There's no one like the next in many respects. And so I'm just curious, how do you think about the role in general? Yeah, so I love that snowflake analogy because I often do say to my clients, whether it's CEOs or boards looking for, you know, marketing or go-to-market talent, they're trying to find like what's the iconic CMO and like but really is everybody is created so differently and there's a moment in time where the right skill sets will do, will do the right things. So, you know, really understanding who you are as a CMO and a leader is critically important to find that best fit match, that that puzzle piece. But to your question about what is a CMO today, my gosh, it has changed so much over the last nine years. I mean, it's a fundamentally so many things different than even when I did that job. I did it at a public company. I did it at private equity. I led an agency and dealt with many, many CMOs. And it's ever evolving. That's what I love about it. And the agility of keeping up with it and leading it at the exact same time is really invigorating. It, it has to be the most dynamic C-suite role in the C-suite in terms of, of change. And that's that's really exciting. It's also really challenging for CMOs to know what is the job. And it used to be classic brand management. And then 10 years ago, everybody's like, no, you need to be digital and data. And then now we're somewhere as a hybrid in between. And we've learned a lot over the last decade of what is this hybrid between data orientation, digital orientation, and brand orientation and creativity. And it's not an or job, it's an and job. And I think wrapping your head around and really understanding what combination of data versus brand am I as a leader? And how do I match myself up to the right moments in time where you know my natural inclination, both my head and my heart, what am I good at? What do I love to do? Really, really matches. Now, there's no human being that's 50-50 left brain, right brain. It just doesn't exist. You are going to lean more data math oriented or more creative brand oriented just as a human being of who you are. Now, you can lean into the other sides and you can learn and hire well on the other side. The sweet spot really is whether you're brand led or data led, most roles right now for CMOs are somewhere between 60, 40, 70, 30 of one way or another. And some opportunities are 70 data, 30 brand, or 60 brand, 40 data, or some combination of 65, 35. And really understanding where you play, where your superpowers are, and really listening to a recruiter or a CEO who's ever explaining the role just to make sure that it matches. Because us marketers, look, all the best ones, we could sell a cherry popsicle to somebody in a white outfit and tell them it's a good idea. And you know what? And if they stain their shirt, then we sell them detergent. We're that good. And we can sell ourselves into any job. Like I sold myself into that other job. Like I was better than the other guy. I convinced myself because I wanted that job so bad. But his skill sets were better than mine for that job. And you have to have the self-awareness to be able to say that my skill sets are, and uh, you know, very honest, I love the brand side. I happen to be good in math by complete accident, so I can play a pretty good data game. I don't like it as much. So it's a combination of what I like and what I'm good at. I could probably lean into a 70 math data oriented in the 30 brand, I'd be completely miserable in that job because I can do the data side. It's not my happy place, but I know enough to be dangerous. So I'm like a 70-30 brand data guy. I can hold my own, but my passion really lies in building brands. Somebody else is a complete opposite of me or some variation in between. And that's really, I think, what CMOs really need to have a good grasp on and like you said, no two CMOs are created equally. It could be some like random, like 71, 29% or something like that. You know what I mean? But that 1% here, there really makes a difference. So, you know, I, I know I'm rambling on, but I'm so passionate about knowing who you are, knowing where you lean into on what you love to do and what you're good at and align yourselves and really find out what does this job need from me? 
And am I going to be happy with that perfect match? Well, and I, I really like how you put that and, you know, know yourself, but it's also the and because you can't get away from both sides of the equation. You got to do both. You got to do both. But it is really about finding the right fit. And as you eloquently illustrated earlier with your own personal journey, you can get really attached to the potential of a job and forget that to really assess, you know, is this the right fit for me? Not, is it the right job that I want? Is it the right fit for me? And this is one of the things, you know, marketers, even the most data oriented, you know, we're, we're dreamers. We can see the future. We can project ourselves into these jobs, even if it's not the right thing for us. Right. And that's really one of the reasons why the tenure of CMOs are the shortest in the C-suite. I think that there's a lot of hope and belief that this job is, is kind of match my skill sets. I like a part of it and I will lean into what my superpower is, but it's not the whole entire job. So I think that that's where marketers, you know, spin in and out of jobs very, very quickly. It's not the best match for them and you find out pretty quickly. So you know, with the two to three year tenure, that's kind of a cycle. The first year, you're just, you're building the strategy, you're learning the team, you're figuring things out, you get your marketing plan for the next year put into place. Year number two, you execute on it, you iterate on it, you make it great. And year three, if you survive, one of a couple of things happen. One is it doesn't work and either you leave or they ask you to leave or they make you completely rethink. Um, or two, it works really, really well and your CEO says, give me exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. And all of a sudden, it feels like a maintenance job. And you're sitting there going, I just had two years of complete transformation, team build, new strategy, hired a new agency, and now you want me to coast? That's not what you hired me which is one of my favorite lines at about two to three years for marketers is they get hired and fired for the same reason. And it's to bring disruption. It's to bring newness. It's to bring change. And this is actually maybe a pivot in the conversation, which is the movement from chief marketing officer with all of these other things like a customer officer, a revenue officer, a growth officer, right? A customer experience officer. And every single one of those things down that line What's super interesting about it is they're increasing in their pragmatism and their ability to stay the course. So from less disruptive to mostly totally disruptive. So for example, we did psychometric data understanding of CMOs. And from a strategy standpoint and execution standpoint, a CMO is a disruptive thinker and a change agent. On the flip side, a chief revenue officer, which is also a go-to-market role that's around customer centricity, they, their psychometric uh, behaviors around future thinker versus a disruptive thinker. And it may sound nuanced, but if you're disruptive just to be disruptive versus a future thinker, and if your customer tells you to stay the course and you're a future thinker, you're going to stay the course because it's the right thing to do. So there are nuances between kind of the behaviors of marketing officers to growth officers to revenue officers and the increasing pragmatism of change not for just change's sake is really something that I think classic marketers need to pay attention to because a lot of reason why these other roles are being hired is because the CMOs aren't delivering on long-term growth plans, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and thanks for addressing the growth titles because they they are increasing, it seems like, in focus and number. And it does make me think about, like, we used to have a, a rising tide of chief digital officers and, and they're still out there. But at some point, in the past, I think trade press would love to say that's death the CMO. They're all chief digital officers now. And I don't know that that actually played out that way. I think we still have chief marketing officers and they just became more digitally savvy over time. And I'm curious if we're just, yes, like to your point, there's a cautionary tale here that like CEOs are looking for something that CMOs today can't give me. And so I'm going to create a position for chief revenue officer, or chief growth officer. That's definitely something we should be focused on. But over the long term, are we maybe too obsessed with titles? And this is still the same function. We're just evolving it as we go. How do you think about that? Yeah, I love this question and this topic. So about five to six years ago, when I was you know, a couple of years in leading the global CMO practice here at Russell Reynolds, my clients kept coming to me and saying, marketing's broken. What else is there? Like, what else you got? 
right? Like, why am I hearing about these customer offer through things here? Why am I hearing about this growth? Like, talk to me a little bit about that. And about four years ago, we actually formally changed our practice from the global chief marketing officer practice to customer activation and growth practice. Because at the end of the day, these CEOs and boards, all they wanted was somebody to activate the customer and grow the business. And they didn't care what they were called. They really didn't. So no, you shouldn't be worried about what the title is, but you need to pay attention to why things are shifting to growing scope, right? So for example, the chief growth officer is someone in most instances, growth officers have marketing, sales, and innovation. The three of those pull together. Now, can every single marketer take over the sales function? Well, maybe, maybe not. Do Can they take over innovation and R&D? Maybe, maybe not. So we're coming in and hiring these trees growth officers. They may not be a marketing route up. They might be an innovation route up. They might be a commercial route up. They might have been a GM, right? So the inputs into a lot of these roles are very different. One of the biggest trends that I've been seeing over the last five years is the incredible influx of engineers turned marketers. Unbelievable turn of engineers becoming marketers. And what's so fascinating about it is engineers are taught to solve problems, that's basically at the end of the day, no matter what engineer you are, right? You're, you're a builder, you're a grower, you solve problems that other people can't. You're given disparate things to say, build this thing, whether it's electrical or structural or chemical. That's the modern go-to-market thinker is creating things that are new, that are different, that solve problems. And an engineering mindset, the ones that are maybe frustrated engineers that feel like they have a little bit of a creative flair in them or kind of want a little bit more than, than maybe the formalized structure of what an engineering job can give them, they often will come up through product, then kind of take a product marketing job and then might take on a digital job. And the next thing you know, you have these incredibly fully formed engineers. And what's so interesting, and it kind of leads to a second point that would be worth um, talking about that we've talked about in the past is these engineers becoming these marketers have such eclectic backgrounds. It was a journey to get there. So they have all of these different touch points. One of the biggest challenges for marketers, like alone marketers who often get a marketing job and stay in marketing job and may not move into customer revenue, growth, commercial experience is they have such verticalized experiences. And right now we're having a terrible, terrible, terrible challenge with CMO succession. We've been monitoring CMO job moves globally across every single industry for eight solid years. And it's getting higher statistics. We are now up to 80% of CMOs are hired in externally. So if you're a number two and VP or an SVP, you have a one in five chance of getting your boss's job. That's really tough to hear. But you have to ask yourself, why? I'm in the likeness of them. I am doing exactly what I'm told. I know where the bodies are buried. I know how this works. I know all of these things. Why am I not getting my job? And part of it is, is number two and number three marketers are being so specialized. And the amount of 20-year VPs that have only ever done CRM or only ever done media, they make good money in number two roles, but they've never been pushed out of their comfort zone. So when a 20-year CRM person says, I want to be a CMO, I'm like, have you ever written a creative brief? Do you know how to write a press release? What about crisis management? What? No. On the flip side, if somebody is a brand person, have they ever, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, find themselves out of a paper bag doing different deciles and segmentation. But the CMOs of today have created these specialized teams and just haven't been able to trade them up or move them out of the, the comfort zone. So any sitting CMOs here, like that are listening today, beg of you, do what the CPG companies used to do exceptionally well move people around the organization. If you had a job in a CPG company 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd be 18 months in a marketing role, 18 months in a sales role. They put you a little bit into finance or supply chain, and then you'd become a GM. Amazing experiences, and then you could conquer the world. Now, the challenge is we keep recycling the same CMOs over and over and over because they're the ones that are the most qualified, because they were the ones that were already on the ascend when all of these new things were thrown their way, right? They started with a very simple marketing career. They grew up and learned things as they became more senior. 
insert 10-year marketing leader, 10 years ago, they got themselves slotted into a vertical. And many of them have stayed there. It's a real, real, real tragedy that I really worry about over the next 10 years. Where are the next gen CMOs coming from if they're not well-rounded? So to the number twos or number threes, push yourself to take on new things that put you out of your comfort zone. Because if you want your boss's job, you need to learn them before you get into that number one job because CEOs don't want to take a risk of a brand person learning CRM day one of being a CMO. Yeah. Just double down on everything you just said, because <laughs> it is, it is about broadening your exposure. Um, and some of the research I've done a couple, it's probably two, three years old now at this point with the CMO club, but even then 60% of the CMOs we surveyed did not have somebody on their direct team that they would put in their role. And it seems like it's just continuing to get worse. It really is. And, and it's a shame on a lot of people right? It's a shame on the CMO. It's a shame on the CEO. It's a shame on the number two not demanding, but it's a product of the circumstances. We're all working so hard just to keep up with the pace of change. And it's a risk to move your team around. You've got the best CRM person on the planet. Putting them in another job is super risky, but it's the right thing to do for the long term. Yet we're so driven by, you know, getting to the next quarter and you might have to make, you know, you should make some of these tough leadership changes for the benefit of, of generations to come and giving these CMOs the biggest opportunity of getting some of these other jobs, right? In many instances, as I said, a lot of the customer officer, revenue officer, growth officers are not going to classically trained CMOs. Interesting. I want to come back. You mentioned something. I don't think it was today. I think it was on a prior conversation. And we talked about, you know, the the mix and identifying who you are, you know, um, 60, 30, 30, 60, which side of the equation you're on. We've talked about broadening your experience base so that you're actually in consideration for the role itself. But you also mentioned something to me around wave maker versus wave rider, which I think is another dimension that people should be thinking about. Could you tell us a little bit about that real quick? Yeah. So what's super interesting is you kind of see different brands floating through different CMOs. Now, a wave maker is someone who will come in and disrupt and make change. But change often happens. And it was a point that I refer referred to a little bit. Come by year three, your boss says, do it again because it worked, right? The wave maker did something amazing, put out some great work, some customer experience, transformation, really set the stage. That wave maker is a born wave maker. They're going to go make waves somewhere else. And coming up behind them is a wave rider who knows exactly how to take that and have maintenance. And this isn't a, this isn't a good or bad. It's how do these people coexist and really understanding is like, is my superpower really taking something and maximizing it and growing it? The challenge with the wave maker is it's hard to keep them around. The challenge with a wave rider is they ride the wave for three years. Do they have the skill set or the desire to be a wave maker when that has run its course? That strategy has been around three to five years and the CEO is like, now what else do you have? And the wave rider is like, uh, I'm not a wave maker. So it's how do you really kind of lean into those opportunities and identify, is my comfort zone a wave rider? And if so, how am I going to handle a wave-making situation when it comes my way. I need to make sure that I've got the number twos. I need to make sure I have the right agencies because I can't ignore the fact that I, I'm more comfortable in a wave rider, a wave rider. I need to figure out how I can get waves, how do I lead waves. And the same thing with a wave maker. If you want to have longevity in your career, you have to figure out how you can sustain and still still satiate your soul. Where do you find that creative outlet? Where do you find that transformation? Maybe ask for a little bit more responsibility to try something new or you know, lean into a, an acquisition of some sorts just to have longevity because we keep going in these two and three year cycles, you know, and it keeps repeating itself over and over. And we're just not having the conversations. Why? Why is this happening? How do we kind of stretch stretch this out a little bit more? And honestly, if I was to give myself advice, my younger self would be figure that out earlier. I'm a natural born wave maker. And I did the typical two, three year throughout my whole career, 
right? My resume is a stereotypical agency marketer person. Did spend eight years at Leo Burnett, but I had three fundamentally different jobs. I did a third of it in Asia, a third of it in Europe, and a third of it in America. So I was able to make waves each one of those times. I just happened to be at the same company the whole time. But given the opportunity to change companies, I would have done it in a heartbeat. You know, if I was in Asia and Leo Burnett didn't give me the opportunity to go to Europe, but another agency did, I would have jumped. So it's just really understanding who you are. And I'm glad I had those eight years at that one company because I have some of the best friends I've ever had in my life that came out of that that longevity, right? And I learned so much about myself. So I was able to kind of have my cake and eat it too by having longevity at one firm yet giving myself some really epic wave riding moments. But that just comes from self-awareness and kind of learning along the way. Well, I have one more trend question to ask you and then we can transition gears. Um, I'm curious if you're starting to see or think that this number of people we've started to see go from CMO role or CMO type role to CEO. Is that a trend or is it just too early to call it that at this point in time? It seems like getting to be a trend in my opinion. Gosh, I hope so. I really, really want it not just to be a trend. I want it to be a long-term fact. It's really interesting because, again, going back to the psychometric data of CMOs, we've done all the... We've got 40 PhD psychologists. We evaluate and assess people up, down, sideways, and back and forth and have a tremendous amount of data for thousands of C-suite leaders. And when we take the CEO leadership data and the CMO leadership data, they are so incredibly similar, almost the most similar out of anybody else, except on one measure. And that's the pragmatism measure. They're almost diametrically opposed in pragmatism. So CEOs are very disruptive, but they have the ability to span into also being pragmatic when needed. Right. So why CEOs just love killer CMOs is because they completely align on disruption, strategy, change makers. That's a superpower of a CEO. That's a superpower of a CMO. It's not a superpower of other people in the C-suite. But the lack of ability to be pragmatic when the doo-doo hits the fan is a really tough thing that when things get really tough, CMOs lean into more disruption. Like, well, how about another idea to get us out of this? How about, how about another strategy? How about, right? This is why I was hired. This is what I'm really good at. And everybody else, all seven other people in the C-suite are like fully moved into pragmatism. And you're still this person over there trying to kind of create your way out of, out of, a challenge, that's a big, big challenge. Now, CMOs with a healthy dose of pragmatism, CMOs that have had a GM, because all you need is one GM job to get pragmatism pushed into you like nobody's business, right? Like, let me tell you, you're running a business, you got to be pretty darn pragmatic. So it's either innate to who you are. You either had that professional experience and really were able to hone your skills and be like, all right, I'm running a business right now or these other customer activation and growth roles that naturally have more pragmatism, as I discussed earlier in this talk about the farther away you get from marketing and closer to growth and closer to revenue, you do have this higher pragmatism. So yes, we believe more customer activation and growth leaders are becoming GMs, presidents, and CEOs because that role is significantly more customer-centric than it's ever been. That is what is a CEO that is highly customer-centric across any industry, whether it's B2B or B2C, is going to win. The customer is more control than anything than, than we've ever seen before. And having a CEO that recognizes that and builds go-to-market strategies around the customer is going to be the winning CEO. Now, just the note is, is that one of these things is not like the other. And that's the marketer. And sometimes you just got to sit on your hands when you're talking and listen to the pragmatism filling the room and just taking a beat and listening to others and being okay with not being disruptive 24 seven, because that's not always the best answer. And that's not going to get you to be a CEO. If you actually, and I'll stop talking in a second, but you know, my wife tells me I'm the first person to make a short story long, but My last thought here is, which is why you see a lot of amazing entrepreneurs when the business gets to a certain scale, the reason why they've been able to create 
magic out of nothing, which is called a company, right? Like nobody's ever seen this before. Is there incredible disruption? We've all seen those founders fail when they do not get a voice of reason hired around them and able to transition the business. There are very few, but there are successful founders that either they had the natural pragmatism, got really good coaching and developing, had really good self-awareness that were able to turn into fully-fledged, equally pragmatic and disruptive CEOs, or they recognize, sell the business, hire in someone who can, can, who can do that. CMOs have to think that, think that too, right? If I'm in a Fortune 500 public company CMO, I kind of got to act the part sometimes too. Right. No, absolutely. This has been fun. I mean, and you, you've given us a ton to think about in terms of like, how do I need to develop my own self? How do I need to think about the role that I might be looking at or being interviewed or talked to about to make sure it's the right fit for me and how to develop myself, frankly. And if I have aspirations to stay in the CMO role for any length of time, or if, if I'm looking to go beyond that to a GM or a CEO role in the future. So this has been awesome. I would love to shift the conversation and talk a little bit more about you. You know, you've gone through a empty nest situation, transition that you're going through now. But my favorite question to ask people to come on the show is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? You know, probably just the fortunes of being able to travel and appreciate the world. Coming from immigrant grandparents and parents, always knowing that I had family on the other side of the world, always made me super curious about what their lives were like and just getting a peek into the window of people are like me, but they're very different from me, yet they're my family. That was just always so curious to me and always asking questions, how people live, what do they eat? What do they do? And I think that's a great hallmark of a great marketer, customer-centric, tech-enabled leader is just that curiosity. I traveled a lot. You know, when I was young, I got jobs as long as I could ever remember just to self-fund trips. And my parents were very, very, very open-minded to me packing my bags and backpacking when I was 16, 17, 18. As a parent now, I'd be like, heck no, kid, you're not going backpacking on your own now. I mean, okay, fine. I'm, you know, I'm being double standards here, but I don't know. My parents were ignorance is bliss back back in the 80s when I was doing that. But just having that opportunity to put put myself outside of my comfort zone. And, you know, I mean, I went through crazy things like, you know, losing my wallet in in Paris and traveling around for six weeks with nothing, no idea or anything, and figuring out like this was back in the 80s. There was no like Hey, mom, dads, do this or bank machines or nothing. It just taught you resilience and curiosity. And believe me, when you have no wallet and no money and you're in Europe by yourself, you learn good selling techniques and marketing and how to be charismatic because it is all trying to get things out of people and have them not think you're a freak. And as such, we've traveled a tremendous amount with our kids. They're a little bit more fortunate than I was because I'm paying for their travels around the world with us as a family versus me backing, backpacking, sleeping on beaches and in, you know, $2 a night hostels. But either way, it's just, it's just important. So that's probably, I think, the thing that's made me most curious and just the thirst for just traveling for the rest of my life. And COVID was really tough just because of that. The same, same, same at our house uh, in terms of travel and, and COVID. We, we had the revenge travel this summer uh, <laughs> as, as, as a, a way to get back at COVID um, as many people I think have been doing. I also like traveling to just odd places too. Like it doesn't, I've never hated a trip. Like some people are like, "Ugh, I never want to go to that city," or "Ugh, I just." And I'm just like, you know what? You just you didn't look hard enough. Like my philosophy is, if a collection of if more than 300 people live in a location, it's a worthy location. People settled there for a reason. There's got to be something. And I'm just fascinated why people choose to live in really odd places that don't seem right for me. Like in the middle of nowhere, or in like a like, why would you raise your family in a big bustling city? you know, because I didn't do that. Like just all of that kind of stuff. I, like there's never been a trip as crappy of a city as some people might think I've been. I've always come away feeling like I'm smarter because I met people who chose to do something that I chose not to do. 
And that to me is, that's a win. I'm definitely feeling like uh, your friends advising you, you're in the right role now. <laughs> like, you, you can find interesting things about every nook and cranny of the, of, the, of the world. You can find it in people too. So that's amazing. You mentioned this earlier, but I'm curious, what advice would you give your younger self? And I think it was a, earlier you were saying something to the effect of like wave maker and, and you know, maybe trying to figure out how to make ride the wave as well as make the wave. But like, I'm curious if that fits here, or if you would, you know, say something else. It really does. I too spontaneously jumped out of some jobs. Look, it served me well and I figured out how to build a decent career, but you know, I could have jumped over a couple of like when I take a look back, I'm like, did I really need to take that job? Was that title really worth it? Was that like if I stayed at this job for five years instead of two and a half years and two of them, I think I was wooed by the shiny object too much. And I, and I think sometimes success can be your worst enemy. And early in my career, I was really fortunate by being at great agencies doing great things. My first campaign... So my first job ever was at Ogilvy & Mather. And I worked on the Dove campaign. And I worked with the two creative leaders who were responsible for real beauty one of the most iconic Dove campaigns ever. I was a generation before that Real Beauty campaign, but I was working in Toronto and we did a campaign that was the same creative directors who their second kind of reinvention of Dove was Real Beauty. So they're just brilliant, brilliant, amazing people. And I'm so thankful. And I only was in that job for just over two years. And in that first job, we won a Con Lion, an APG for a gold strategy, and a gold Effie. The first flipping thing I did out of college. I got the golden trifecta that most people their whole lives can't achieve three of the best creative strategy and business award on one campaign. And I had headhunters calling me like crazy. And I kind of, because I was so naive and so new, I jumped at one that gave me a job title and almost doubled my salary. And I was like, I didn't know anything. Like, like looking back, I'm like, I don't know. I was a great account executive and I was super lucky and I got a lot of by osmosis. And I think that somebody was like, let's get anybody we can off that team just to get a little bit. And I just think, gosh, if I stayed on that Dove team, would I have been the one that real that could have also claimed real beauty? Could I have been the one that could claim more? Like, Because in the end of the day, nobody's talking about that campaign from 1991. It seemed really big at the time. But now I'm looking back, I'm like, it was so small in the grand scheme of other things that I could have done if I stuck to it and wasn't just, oh, wow, here I am, 25, doubling my salary and getting a senior on my title. But look, hindsight's 2020. But if I was going to go, I can't really change my trajectory. But I, you know, and it's kind of funny because I make a living about people moving jobs. I actually think you make better moves the more senior you are then the more junior you are. So if I could help junior people not move, so they make the right moves when I start to recruit them, that would be something that I would love to be a legacy. That's amazing. Well, is there a topic you think marketers need to be learning more about right now? Or maybe it's something you're trying to learn more about yourself? I think marketers always just need to be on the quest of figuring out customers. And it's an ever-changing quest because you just don't know. And I also think, you know, marketing... We've got to get out of like the competitive set. I think we're so trained to be like, I'm in insurance. What is my competitor doing? Honestly, you're competing against YouTube videos about cats, to be honest. I mean, honestly, consumers, I don't even know what the latest statistic, but it's like 28 hours in a 24-hour period of marketing messages shot your way by every single possible medium out there all at the same time. If you really think that Consumers are lining up your category and picking that. No. So it's really learning consumer behavior. You know, it's like your biggest challenge right now for people to pay attention to your message is the next dance on TikTok. I mean, because people are giving more time to that than they really are to you. So you just really constantly need to know what are people doing? Why are they doing it? How can I compete against that? How do I get my message to them, but also in a way that feels right for our brand and our business? It's a hard job marketing today. It's a really, really hard job, but so fun. And everything has a price. If you want a fun job, it's got to be hard. Right. No, I agree. On a personal note, are there brands, companies, or causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of? I might cop out here for two reasons. One is... 
I have a hard time mentioning brands because either if my I'm working for other brands, my clients might be annoyed. I don't say their brand. Um, so there's a little bit of that. Like it's the typical management consulting thing, right? Never, never, never mention the brands that you that you work on. But I would actually say, and this is just a little bit of me too. And I think it is a little bit, like you said, I, I can find interest in anything. I do find interest in anything. And I think that's what, you know, again, be as broad and open as you can think. Like I don't love every movie I see, but I like, but I like every movie that I see and I actually don't hate any movies. And it's the same thing. Like I, I don't really have a favorite musical artist because not every single Bruce Springsteen song is the best in the world. So to just commit and say, he's my absolute favorite, I'm like, no, there's certain things about his music and his message that really inspire me, other things not. Equally so, there's other artists that for very different reasons. So I just think it's about, I don't pick favorites. I learn from everybody and it gets a little frustrating with my friends because when they want to play, like, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite restaurant? I always come up empty and I know it's really annoying because I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't have a favorite cuisine. But my wife also is like, should I be concerned about that? I'm like, no, the only favorite I have is a favorite wife. So we're good there. All right, we're good there. I got a favorite wife. But in terms of cuisine and music and movies and TV shows. It's all up for grabs. <laughs> it's all up for grabs. Yeah. I love it. Last question for you. What do you think is the largest opportunity or threat to marketers today? I think if marketers do not continue to expand just their knowledge and their view, like there's a huge opportunity to be very enterprise wide. And I think the biggest opportunity is often the same threat. If you do not think of yourself as the customer-centric, tech-enabled leader of your organization, it's going to be a tough road forward because that's what that's what CEOs are looking for. They're not looking for a marketing leader. They're looking for a customer-centric, tech-enabled leader. And that is a huge opportunity. If you present too much as a marketer, it feels like a channel. And if you think about the peers, right? Like a CHRO's job is to develop leaders through the organization, right? It's enterprise-wide. They touch every single corner. Yeah, they run, run an HR function, but nobody really gets caught up in like comp and benefits and kind of the functional side of HR leadership. They, they kind of evaluate them on their development of people through an organization. Same thing with like general counsel. They're enterprise-wide to help navigate and manage risk and open doors and closed doors to keep a company safe and bring the best out of them. And a marketer too often define themselves as the functions that they lead versus the value that they add. I think marketers need to lean into the value they add. It's I represent the customer and the world is becoming increasingly more tech enabled and doesn't mean I need to be a CIO or a CTO or even a chief digital officer, but I just need to recognize that the value I add enterprise-wide is by being customer-centric and tech-enabled and make decisions accordingly and help grow the business that way. And the craft is marketing. That's the means to the end, not the end game. Well, Norm, thank you so much for sharing all these great insights and um, and so much to take away, frankly. So thank you for coming on the, the show. Thanks for breaking up my day. This is really fun. <laughs> Usually awesome. I ask the questions and just sit here and take notes. So I hope it was it was okay because it was a little bit of a role reversal. Usually I'm the interviewer. <laughs> oh, you did great. You did great. You did great. Well, I appreciate you and, and thank you. This is an amazing initiative that, that you've been undertaking. So very well done. The craft needs people like you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.